Well, good morning again. Welcome again to Trinity Presbyterian Church. This morning, we will continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, if you would be turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, um, we will we'll be continuing our study in verses 18 through 22 this morning. Now, these conversations that we observe here in Matthew 8 this morning um, are an interlude between Jesus' ministry of mercy and miracles, of these healings that have drawn these great crowds to follow Jesus. And I believe that Matthew puts these conversations here to demonstrate that the same Jesus who has authority over sickness, over nature, and the demons— also has authority over the lives of his disciples. Matthew's telling us that Jesus determines what following him will involve. And so if we are going to follow Jesus, it must be on his terms rather than on our own. And that's what we're going to explore this morning in these five short verses. But before we read the passage, would you pray with me to ask God's help for us to hear and heed his word? Our Father, our God, we give you thanks for the great love that you have for us and that you have poured into our hearts, that you have with your gracious and merciful sovereign hand of salvation given us hope. We thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning, and we ask that by your spirit, you will soften the hardness of our hearts, open our ears and our eyes that we may hear what you teach and delight in your ways. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. Again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. This is God's word for us this morning. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On Monday... September 19, 1853, the 23-member crew of the Dumfries, a small three-masted ship bound for China, scurried to complete its final preparations before the voyage began. The clipper was all but ready to pull away from the dock at Liverpool. A young man named Hudson Taylor and his mother sat in the Stern's cabin, which would be his home for the next six months. James and Amelia Taylor had both come to Liverpool the previous week to see their son off. The scheduled departure of the Dumfries had been delayed several days, so Hudson's father had been forced to return to his business in Barnsley. Now, mother and son sat beside each other on the bed, sharing their final moments together. Both realized that it would likely be a very long time until they would see each other 
And perhaps their reunion would be in heaven rather than on earth. They sang a hymn together and then prayed. Hudson's tone of voice was composed and joyous until he prayed, And now, God, I commend to your care the objects of my love. Father and mother, Sister Amelia. His voice faltered as he paused to regain his composure and then continued, concluding confidently, Heavenly Father, I realize that I am entering upon a course of trial, difficulty, and danger. Yet none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That story is an excerpt from Hutton Taylor's biography by Vance Christie. And you'll recognize in his prayer the words of the Apostle Paul speaking before the Ephesian leaders in the book of Acts. I find that reading accounts of the lives of men like the Apostle Paul or of Hudson Taylor of saints that have lived lives that demonstrate an extraordinary commitment to the service of the Lord's kingdom can offer us a living exegesis of what Jesus means when he says things like, if you want to follow me, you need to know that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or leave the dead to bury their own dead. We find such exhortations over and over in Matthew's gospel and throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Jesus calls his own to follow him, but he doesn't want anyone to follow him under false pretenses. He would have all men count the cost of what it means to be his disciple and then to follow him to the end. So this morning, I want us to take a look at what Jesus says is the meaning of what being a disciple is by exploring the three characters that we read of in this passage. So we'll simply take a look at the first disciple, the second disciple, and the Son of Man. If you look with me at verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now, Jesus' decision to cross the lake appears to be related to the presence of the crowd. The text insinuates that Jesus is at this point deliberately withdrawing from the broader Jewish community to embark on a, a foreign journey across the lake in which it would not be expected that his Jewish supporters outside his disciple group would be able to or willing to go away with him. So these two men who want to join Jesus, this first and second disciple, when he separates himself from the crowd, are at least potential disciples of Jesus. In, in verse 19, it says, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this scribe makes an amazing statement of dedication, especially coming from one who would have otherwise been expected to reject Jesus. In fact, the scribe uses the address teacher, a form of address which Matthew's gospel in Matthew's gospel is only used of those outside Jesus' group, never by his disciples. But if we read the pages of scripture carefully, we see this kind of commitment uttered from the lips of people again and again and again. But we also often see this allegiance waver and fade when tribulation arises. Even Jesus' disciple Peter in the upper room exerted great confidence when he exclaimed, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But when trial came and the pressure from the crowds arose and fear overcame him, Peter did deny Jesus, didn't he? So here in Jesus' conversation with the scribe in Matthew 8, Jesus wants to make the stakes clear. Do we truly know the cost of following Jesus? In other words, do you understand what you're signing up for? The scribe is stepping forward as Jesus commands the disciples to follow him to the other side of the lake, but Jesus' response focuses not on the immediate boat trip, but on the itinerant lifestyle to which his disciples were to be committed. Now, of course, Jesus did have places to sleep. He had friends like Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus who invited him and even his disciples in and provided meals for them. As the carpenter son of Nazareth, Jesus presumably had a relatively secure place in society, but he left all that behind. The ministry that now required their crossing the lake would provide no certainty of lodging. In fact, the coming night would find Jesus sleeping in a boat. Foxes and birds have a natural home, a place that they belong in this world. But the Son of Man and those who follow him do not have a home in this world. Jesus offers no guarantees of comfort or of the security that comes from having a place in which to dwell on this earth. His own life was a long series of rejections by his own people and by the Gentiles. So what are the implications of this for how we view this world? How do we relate to the temporal pleasures and comforts, to the material gifts that we enjoy each day? The fact that Jesus never owned a home does not mean that we can't own homes. But it does remind us that we may be called to give up our homes our other possessions in Jesus' service? What is our posture toward these material gifts that the Lord gives us? Where do we find our ultimate comfort, our satisfaction, our security? Is it in the things that we own, the wealth that we build, our retirement fund? Is it in our relationship or our status and our employment? 
Do we value these things more than Jesus, more than his call on our lives to follow him? In good times and prosperous times, the cost may not seem so high. And people take the name of Christ without actually undergoing the radical transformation that true conversion implies, a willingness to part ways with anything to follow Jesus. But Jesus says that we need to count the cost before we follow him because he is looking for people who will follow him to the end. He's also looking for people who will follow him right now. Picking up in verse 21 with the second disciple. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Luke actually records that the man's request came in response to Jesus first commanding him to follow him. And on the surface, Jesus' response to the second disciple could feel callous or even unfeeling. The man's request seems well-intended. After all, the fifth commandment does tell us to honor our father and our mother. And wouldn't it only take a short while for the man to fulfill his sonly duty and go and bury his father? But what's really going on here is more likely that the man's father is not, in fact, dead, but that he would like to go and care for him until he passed away to fulfill his sonly duty. To bury one's father would be the standard idiom for fulfilling one's responsibilities for the remainder of their father's lifetime with no respect, with no prospect of his imminent death. So this would be a request for an indefinite postponement of discipleship, likely for years rather than days. The the burial of parents is perhaps a child's supreme social responsibility. But true disciples lay down every duty to heed the call of Christ. Jesus' shockingly countercultural response is that even family does not come first in God's kingdom. Jesus does. We need to ask ourselves, how do we make an idol of our families? How do family relationships, family obligations become more important than the kingdom of God for us? What are the responsibilities, the obligations that we prioritize over Christ other than family? Maybe our work or our school or sports or committees. Jesus' words here seem harsh. He leave the dead to bury their own dead. What Jesus seems to mean is that compared with those who have found new life, in the kingdom of heaven, those who remain outside it are dead and will continue to attend to worldly affairs. As for those who have found new life in Jesus, we must be willing to go wherever and whenever Jesus wants us to go. So where and what is Jesus calling us to? Luke's account is helpful in answering this question. He records Jesus' words and says, But as for you, Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Disciples have a more important calling and responsibility, heralding the good news of the kingdom. We're called to tell God's story. Everyone who is called by Jesus is not only called to be forgiven, but to be a servant and to pass that forgiveness to others. Presbyterian minister and missionary during the turn of the last century, Robert Elliott Spear once wrote, In common honesty, the man who does not feel constrained to spread the knowledge of Christ among mankind should surrender Christ wholly. What right has he to Christ? If Christ is not able to save the world, he's not able to save a single soul. And if he can save a soul, it is awful to withhold him from any. The work that Jesus is calling us to is the work that supersedes all earthly allegiances, all priorities. It is the work of proclaiming the kingdom of God to lost sinners near and far. Jesus tells us that this call may come at great expense to us and to the ones that we love. But he calls us anyway. Several years ago, a man named Nick Ripkin, who with his wife served with the IMB in one of the most difficult and dangerous areas of the world, South Sudan. After making several scouting trips to Somalia and learning of the great persecution, even unto death, that the few Somali Christians endured there, after losing his son to a pulmonary attack in the middle of the night, the Ripkins determined that the Lord was calling them to tell the stories of the persecuted church in the far reaches of the globe in countries where the underground church has thrived in the face of adversity. The question he needed to answer was, is Jesus worth it? One such story is about a man named Dmitri who lived in the former Soviet Union after Militant atheism swept through the land. Few pastors were left to shepherd the church. Knowing that the gospel needed to go forth, Dimitri asked his wife if she approved of him reading the Bible with their two sons. Of course, she had been praying that her husband would step up and be the spiritual leader of their home for months. But what started as a family devotional quickly grew into a small church. His neighbors learned of the Bible study and sought to worship with Dimitri and his family. One night, the KGB stormed into Dimitri's home and arrested him and carried him a thousand miles north to a prison with 1,500 hardened criminals. Once when his wife and son were able to visit him, he was brought out into the courtyard and laid emaciated on the table in front of his family by the guards. And as his wife tried to quickly shove a pocket New Testament into his jacket, she was caught by the guard who said, do you not know that I could kill you, I could kill your husband, and I could kill your son right now for what you have done, and I would likely get a promotion? The wife replied, you can kill my husband, you can kill me, and you can even kill my son, but no one can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. It's Jesus' love that compelled her husband to proclaim the message of Jesus. 
even in the face of imprisonment and death. Friends, we need to sit at the feet of believers in persecution and ask them, where do you learn to live like this? Where do you learn to die like this? How could she stand so confidently in the face of such terror? How can any of us be so confident when answering the call of Jesus? Our confidence comes from the one who calls us. We must see Jesus Christ as he truly is, the Son of Man. The term Son of Man occurs 82 times in the New Testament. And of those 82 times, 79 of them are from Jesus himself describing himself. Jesus used the title more than any other title to name himself. But who is the Son of Man? First, I want to speak to Jesus' precedent for calling his disciples to suffering. And that, that is that he himself suffered. When Jesus foretells his death in Luke 8, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. In Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's taken himself upon himself the role of servant, owning nothing except the robe that he wore to redeem his people. He knows every trial that you and I could ever face, every sacrifice that we could ever make, and he has made a greater one. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to understand that there's a cost involved with that. But Jesus also promises to be with us in those trials. And even more than Jesus' suffering is the overarching emphasis in the title Son of Man, which points us to his deity and the future hope which gives us confidence to follow him. We read of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision, he foresees and says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Later in Matthew, Jesus uses the words of Daniel's prophecy to foretell his return to heaven. He says, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the Son of Man that calls us to lay down our lives and follow him. The Son of Man who went all the way to the cross for our sake, was crucified, died, and was buried. He calls us to follow him even unto the cross. But friends, praise God that the story doesn't end there. Resurrection is coming for all those who place their faith in Christ who has conquered death. I'll close with this. R.C. Sproul often said that there's a difference between a profession of faith and the possession of faith. In other words, there may be many among us who claim to follow Jesus this morning, but who have not counted the cost and who have not decisively followed him. The question for us is, do we believe that Jesus, the Son of Man, is who he says that he is? Because if he is who he says he is, then to follow him is worth every cost. Matthew chooses not to record either of the disciples' responses here in this passage. This can cause us to wonder how the story ends or for us to slip into the gap gap created by the silence and determine how we will respond. These two men summon everyone who who encounters Jesus to count the cost of discipleship and to act decisively by following him. Jesus is summoning a new humanity to himself to reign with him in glory, but in the power of service, humility, and self-sacrificing love. Through death into everlasting life, he passed. And we will follow him there. Over us, sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we pray that you would help us to heed your call. God, that we would behold the glory of your son and that we would have no other way than to follow him. Father, we pray that you would give us strength in the face of adversity. God, that we would cling to your truth and your promises in the midst of suffering. Father, but that we would be willing to forsake all things for the sake of your kingdom and to follow you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.